Welcome to Future Foodcast. I'm Pam Linemiller, your host. I'm excited about today's episode, but before we get there, a shout out to our sponsor, Farm to Plate. They are creating tomorrow's food business ecosystem today. You can find out more at farmtoplate.io. Our guest has a different perspective on the food business. He's not necessarily a food guy from the get-go. Interested to hear his perspective. Welcome to the podcast, Craig Dunaway. He's the Chief Operating Officer for Penn Station East Coast Subs. Hello, Craig. And thanks for having me here today. Yeah, and I'm, I'm excited to hear your investment and how you even got into the food business and and how this whole Penn Station East Coast subs business got started because I think it's a little bit different than a lot of people who get into the food business. It certainly wasn't planned. It was uh it was by accident many years ago. So I'm happy to happy to share my story. Yeah. Well I'd love to hear what what the impetus was. How'd you get started? Well sure. Well I actually uh so I was in college, uh, went to Indiana University Southeast in New Albany, Indiana, and there's a gentleman uh, and I used to study together. I I happened to play basketball and he played basketball and they had a study hall for the athletes. And I think it was designed to make sure we studied, um, but we were both accounting majors and, uh, you know, we spent time dreaming. I mean, you're 19 years old, you have no money, but you have a lot of dreams. And uh, we discussed real estate and would that be a good investment one day? And so we just, you know, for the over the course of a couple of years, just bantered back and forth of when we graduate from college, we're going to we're going to buy some real estate. Charlie graduated and went his way, went to work, uh, you know, as a controller someplace. Uh, I graduated and went to work for a CPA firm, you know, spent a year or so working to obtain my license and lo and behold, we just, we worked and, you know, sort of lost touch with each other. And then three years later uh, at the accounting firm, the partners told me we were hiring a controller and it was my buddy, Charlie. <laughs> he came back to me and this is, this is the mid eighties. It's literally 1985. And uh, we had a friend of ours was looking to become a Papa John's franchisee. And, you know, for context at the time, there were only about 45 Papa John's. I mean, you know, there's wow. over 5,000 a day, but, yeah. you know, this is 35 plus years ago. So Charlie worked on a projection for our friend. He was looking to go to Indianapolis, Indiana, and he put this model together. And one day he said, let's go to lunch. Uh, we went to lunch and he said, you know what, remember that real estate discussion we had several years ago back in college? I'm like, oh yeah, I remember. He said, well, let's ditch that and become Papa John's franchisees. Okay. And, uh, and and I had never, I literally had never worked in a restaurant a day in my life. Um, growing up in high school, I had other jobs, but they were not the restaurant industry. Yeah. So Charlie and I met with Papa John's. Uh, in fairness, Charlie played high school baseball with the founder of Papa John's, John Schnatter. So he knew John really well. Uh, we were able to get an audience. And, and you know, Papa John's was looking for, for guys and gals like we were. You know, people who were young, aggressive, would work as hard as you had to work. Um, and we met with them. Uh, we were in Louisville, Kentucky. We had huge dreams, Pam. Uh, we yeah. wanted a really, really big market and we wanted to own the market. Don't ask me why. That's just um, Nashville was taken as a corporate market. Louisville was already sold. Our friend had taken Indianapolis and, and the closest market uh, was Cincinnati, Ohio. And I had probably spent maybe 10 hours in Cincinnati my entire life. And that was probably attending <laughs> three or four Reds baseball games. But we drove the market, uh, liked what we saw, loved the Papa John's product. 
and said we'd like to own the market. And and at the time we we didn't we didn't have the financial wherewithal to own the market, but Papa no. John's wanted to grow aggressively with people like us, and they sold us the market with the caveat that if somebody comes along and wants to do a restaurant, you have a first right to do it. But if you can't do it, we're going to sell it to somebody else. Okay. And what we have to lose? So we said, sure. So we became Papa John's franchisees in late 1985 and in 1986. I stayed in public accounting the whole time that we were Papa John's okay. franchisees. But Charlie, after a year or two, uh, he got out of what he was doing as our controller uh, at, at the accounting firm. And he became our full-time managing partner uh, within our that. Papa John's. So that that's that's how we initially got started as become Papa John's franchisees. Yeah, to even get into the food business. And uh, it seems like at each step along the way, you're like, well, what have we got to lose? Oh, this looks like, oh, okay, what have we got? Just this series of events. I don't really believe in coincidences, but you kind of end up where you're supposed to be. Yeah, you know, I remember the very first uh, loan that we had taken out. It, it, it's so funny to look back this many years later, but we met with the banker. We, I knew him from the world of public accounting. We didn't know each other directly, but we were in Jeffersonville, Indiana, which is a smaller you know community. So a lot of business women know each other. And we went to him and asked him if we could borrow $100,000. He loaned it to us. Uh, it literally wow. cost us only $94,000 to build the restaurant. Uh, Charlie and I put $3,000 each in our pocket, and I thought I was rich. I ran into the banker a couple of years later, and he said, you know what, Craig? He said, we didn't believe in the model at the time, uh, but we believed in you guys. And wow. we knew that if something happened, you would pay us back. And I said, well... I appreciate that. We believed in the model also, or we wouldn't have done it, but I appreciate you having faith in us. So that's what kicked it off. I really did not know anything about the restaurant industry. What I did know was numbers, and it, yes. it didn't take long for me to intimately understand that the restaurant business is a pennies business. Everything that okay. you do is, if you want to make, if you want to maximize your return on investment in the restaurant, you have to micromanage pennies. And, and you can imagine coming from a world of public accounting, how I see the world. It's it's binary to me. Everything's yes, no, black, white. And, you know, in our first couple of restaurants, we a lot of success, but we also had a lot of opportunities for improvement. You know, maybe in, in the Papa John's world, you know, somebody orders a pizza and instead of giving them one garlic sauce, you give them three garlic sauces. You're never going to make up that lost opportunity by not giving garlic sauce to the next two people. And so that started my mind working on creating efficiencies within not Papa John's, but within our restaurants of Papa John's. And okay. ultimately between 1985 and in really 1996, we opened 11 Papa John's. And as I like to say early on, made money in spite of ourselves. The Papa John's brand was taking off. You know, we, we were getting more confident in what we were doing and we were producing enough cash flow that we continued to, to plow it back into the business. And so, yeah. you know, Charlie was doing a good job with that. Uh, I stayed in public accounting. By the time uh, I got out of public accounting, I was a partner. I remember when I told them I was leaving. Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Well, yeah, because we're still you know, at Papa John's and I want to know how you got to Penn Station. <laughs> yeah, so... Sub, so we got to figure that out. You know, Charlie and I, it, it my, my father uh, passed away in December and he worked literally, he was 90, he was going to be 94 in January. And he mm -hmm. literally retired when he was 89 years old. 
And uh, I came from an extremely strong work ethic. Uh, He was the hardest man working person I know. And, uh, you know, I would do public accounting Monday through Friday, Monday through Saturday on, you know, during tax season and audit season. Mm -hmm. And then Charlie and I literally were in Cincinnati every weekend. And we were visiting our restaurants and and meeting with the managers and our managing partner. And, uh, you know, we were really trying to build something special. And uh, really, I think in 1997, uh, looking back, I I don't think it was by accident. I think it was serendipity. Um, Charlie approached me one day and he said, I'm really tired of traveling back and forth to Cincinnati all the time. And Pam, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't smart enough to say, well, then why don't you move? Uh, I just, and and we were partners, you know, we we were partners and that's okay, well, we need to figure something out. And about the same time, uh, and all, all of what I'm getting ready to tell you happened within about a two month period. We had a, we had the second largest franchisee uh, in Cincinnati for Papa John's. His name was Mike Carpenter and, and Mike approached us and said, we'd like to buy your restaurants. But he made us an offer and I said, we might be interested. And then the third thing that happened really simultaneously with that is one weekend, Charlie and I were up here, we stumbled upon Penn Station's food. And uh, Mm. we went in and I remember having a large chicken teriyaki sandwich, a large fry and a large lemonade. It was probably more food than I'd ever eaten in my life, Uh, but it was phenomenal. And Mm. that got Charlie's and my wheels spinning. And, you know, driving back to, to Louisville that day from Cincinnati, it's like, Let's meet with let's meet with Penn Station. Let's find what what they're about. Papa John's is big and successful now. And and let's see what Penn Station is. You know, Charlie began the dialogue with our founder, Jeff Osterfeld, and loved what Jeff had to say. Loved his focus on quality, uh, loved his focus on franchisees have to make money first. And, right. you know, I said this a few minutes ago, how I see the world. It's very binary to me. And and Jeff is touching all of my hot buttons, not because he's trying to sell me because that's his makeup. And, you know, with between Mike offering to buy our restaurants, Charlie telling me he was tired of traveling and and loving what Jeff had to say, we said, you know what, let's sell our Papa John's and let's become Penn Station franchisees in Louisville, Kentucky. So seven and 98, that's what we did. You know what, Craig, I'm hearing just a common thread here. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, I want to say it's a mindset situation where you two were, you know, you had this mindset that that you wanted to do something together and that you wanted to make a difference in whatever that was. And so these opportunities are presenting themselves and you're executing them best you can. But then I don't know that the challenges got to be a little bit more than you wanted to deal with. And somebody else wanted the Papa John restaurant. So you found a a new concept again, but your same focus, your same entrepreneurial yeah. spirit. Well, we can make a difference with this. This is great food, whatever that might be. And and your mission's aligned with the creator of Penn Station. So it, it, it sounded it, like a great marriage for everyone. It it was, you know, I was, I was very fortunate. I mean, I never kind of like the banker said that, you know, we don't think you're going to succeed, but we know you'll, you'll pay us back. The fear yeah. of failure uh, the thought of failure never crossed my mind. The concern of failure, uh, you know, when you're starting out a new business and you're wondering how you're going to meet the payroll that's coming up in yeah. two days. Yeah. I mean, that was always there, but it was there not as it was there as a motivator. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I think that 
I mean, from my perspective, I think when adversity hits, you either run straight into the fire or you run away from it. And I never once thought about running away from, you know, the fire. You know, Charlie yeah. and I started opening Penn Stations in, in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, we found out it was a little more difficult than what we thought. We weren't arrogant about it. We were confident in it. Right. And, you sure. know, we opened our first restaurant thinking we were going to do 60 or $70,000 a month in sales. And you're doing $21,000 a month in sales because nobody knows who you are. Okay. And uh, I remember early on that first restaurant after the first week or two, a customer coming in and saying, oh, I thought you were an oil chain shop. But Charlie and I were persistent. We we had, you know, we had made good money from the selling of our Papa John's and we plowed it all back into Penn Station. So yeah. literally over the course of 18 months... Um, we opened, uh, we opened four Penn stations and we, okay. we built out a corporate office. It was a condo office, but we built it out sure. and we, we opened number five, uh, shortly thereafter and we weren't making any money. We were doing okay. Um, but you know, we were now at the point where it's 1998, 1999 and, and Charlie and I have become confident in our careers uh, yeah. You know, I'd become confident being a partner at a, you know, a regional CPA firm that was one of the larger firms in Louisville. Charlie had become confident at what he was doing, and it caused us to each hone in on what was important. And what was important when we first started out wasn't as important to, you know, his concerns and strengths were not mine anymore. And so we started growing apart a little bit. And uh at the same time, I ran for our franchisee advisory council at, at Penn Station. It was at Jeff's behest. He said, you know, you're a finance guy. You're in this for the money. And yeah. the other four people on it are here operationally. I want to know what a numbers guy thinks. Mm -hmm. And so I ran and won and served on that committee for about a year. And little did I know, you know, Jeff asked me to do that. And he started calling me a lot. Hey, I want to get your opinion on this, get your opinion on that. We had a meeting in Louisville with the VP of operations of Penn Station. And and they were basically telling us everything we were doing wrong and in a good way, in a constructive way. And and I should preface this, Charlie and I are really good friends today. So, uh, you know, sure. we, we had a struggle for a brief period of time, but we kissed and made up. But I said, Charlie, we need to listen to the founder. He created this brand. And uh, we need to, you know, he wrote the ops manual that you were critiquing. And right. so ultimately what Charlie and I decided was one of us should go our separate ways. Jeff had asked me about this same time, again, serendipity again, I think. He said, you know what? I've been watching you. I've been calling you. Uh, I, I think you have really, really good negotiation skills. You try to create compromise in win-win situations. You stand your ground when you have to, but you don't want to see right. someone else lose it at yours or anyone else's expense. And right. so I'd like you to move up Cincinnati and become president. And uh, I was the, I was the youngest partner at our accounting firm, Pam. And I was the, yeah. I was really the go-to guy for younger staff. Yeah. I mean, you, you got someone who's a manager, who's, you know, maybe 32, 33 years old, and they're approaching you saying, do you think, they're not going to ask the 60-year-old partner, they're going to ask the youngest partner, do you yeah. think I have partnership potential? And I told several of them yes along the way, and I told several people, no, I don't think you have what it has, and I'll try to help mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I felt like if I didn't take the opportunity that Jeff offered me, then I was going to, I, I was hypocritical. I mean, you can't give mm -hmm. 
career, I did, I, my career advice that I gave was not me, hey, let me give you career advice. It was people yeah. asking me for my opinion. Sure. And how could I do that to others? You know, talk to them about taking chances and taking risks and every sport, right. sport cliche, you know, if you can't still second base, if you don't get a lead off first. And uh, I thought I'd be hypocritical. So, and, and the other thing that I think was important is, uh, you know, as I like to say, public accounting gave me my gray hair. Uh, it was, it was very, very instructive. It was intense, but that's what gave me my gray hair. And I didn't want to be 50 years old, billing my time out on an hourly basis because right. it is hard. And if you're not billing your time out, you're not making any money. And Papa John's taught me of the exponential growth you can have on the retail side when you have one restaurant and then you open a second and a third and on and on. And I just yeah. didn't want to bill my time out. There's only so many hours in a day. Right there. That's a really important point. I mean, there's a couple along the way here that I want to unpack, but one sure. is that whole leverage capability. And I think um, a lot of food entrepreneurs bring it back to you're working in the food business, but you're working within franchising or talking about scaling what you're able to do so that it's not just dependent on you. And I think a lot of um, listeners that we might have are in the food business and maybe they've got a one-off shop of some sort. And, and so your words of wisdom about thinking about how they leverage themselves and how they can take advantage of the skills that they've got and, and duplicate that without them being the one that has to be executing every single thing that happens. You know, even within a one location or, you know, one function, if you can out of the detail and enable other people to do those, then you free yourself up to expand your concept or do different things. And I think that's a really important thing to think about. That's essentially what your brain was thinking as far as career advice. And you you didn't want to be that one-off billable, have to be there doing it to bill your hours. You want to figure out, you know, how can you do that? And you're also in a position where you're enabling other people to do that because in the franchise model, you're helping yeah. them and you're counseling them and you're using your experience with Papa John's and East Coast to empower them to do the same. Yeah, you know, I, I learned that, I mean, you you, hit the key word in that and, and it's scale. And if you want to, you know, if you want to make a lot of money and, and, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't get in it to change the world. I got in it to make money. And, mm -hmm. and what I learned early on in Papa John's, and I learned this in the world of public accounting too, because I worked with so many successful entrepreneurs and I was in the accounting and auditing world, you know, in, in public accounting. And so it allowed me to work with very successful entrepreneurs and learn from them and, and, and what they did. And, and to get to scale, you have to have systems and procedures in place. And honestly, as a, as a Papa John's franchisee, and even today, when I look at, you know, our Penn Station franchisees, the difference between the single store operator and the individual who has 10 is not work ethic. It's systems and procedures. And, and what you find is that the individuals who can't put systems in place try to outwork the problem. And you can only outwork the problem for so long because if you're devoting, let's just pick the single store operator who's working 50 hours a week. Now he opens a second restaurant. He doesn't have any systems in place, but he decides to spend 25 hours at one restaurant and 25 at another. Still working the same amount of hours, but it's being less because he doesn't have or she doesn't have systems and procedures in place. And so right. what I saw without fail in the Papa John side 
and, and learned when I came into the Penn Station system is everyone who had scale had a system and a procedure for everything. Not some Amazing. of the things, everything that was important, everything that was manageable. And so, you know, dumb, dumb little simple example is, you know, once talk about buying out Charlie, but, you know, I put a procedure in place that said every general manager has to make the deposit by 930 a.m. every day. I didn't want him to leave the restaurant during business hours. Uh, I wanted him to be there to take care of the guest and the right. single store operator who doesn't have a system and a procedure, he goes to the bank himself every day, which means he's leaving the restaurant. And then when they right. open their second restaurant without a system and procedure, often they will leave the first restaurant, go to the second restaurant to get the deposit, and then take it to the bank. Right. It's a right. little dumb example, but but you know, I, one of the first yeah. things I said to you was, this is a pennies business. And yes. if if it's measurable and it's financial, you have to have a system and a procedure to protect it. And that's well, what I learned. Let's dive into that because you've been able to implement some systems with at Penn Station that have really made a big difference. I mean, you understand the value of data. And now that technology has caught up, share some of the, you've been able to make it so that your franchisees, um, you've implemented systems for them to be able to have some critical analytics to make reasoned decisions and fact-based decisions in their restaurants. Yeah, you know, when I when I first came to Penn Station as the president in 1999, um, you know, I left public accounting, you know, that my one, I, I was honored that when I left, they asked me if I would stay and be the managing partner uh, of the accounting firm. It was the goal I had from the day I started and then I yeah. didn't accept it. But when I came to work with Jeff, I've got all these ideas about systems and procedures and, and, and Jeff and I see the world through the same prism. So he already had a lot of systems in place, but I think what I brought from my public accounting background, because I had presented, you know, there's nothing sexy about presenting an audited financial statement to a board of directors. And I had done that a lot. And, you know, know your audience, you look out in the audience and you see eyes gloss over it. And what I learned is from that, present the numbers that are important and that are meaningful and that okay. impact this business in a positive or negative way. And so when I came to Penn Station, in, in fairness, I was a franchisee, so I intimately understood this, uh, you know, on the franchising side, I wanted to make sure that what we did was we gave franchisees the tools to focus on those things that were important. And mm -hmm. I knew from, you know, I knew from 15 years of public accounting that People are often extremely intimidated by numbers. They don't know what they mean. They don't know how to interpret it. Algebraic relationships, say, between the balance sheet and the income statement. And, right. and rather than try to learn that, they avoid it. And so, you know, we used to just have a cash register system here. And when we started implementing the point of sale system, and this is the early 2000s, um, what I wanted to make sure we focused on was not 500 data points to the franchisees. I wanted to make sure we focus on really the 10 data points that made them money or cost okay. them money. And, okay. and, and fortunately, Jeff already had systems in place manually uh, that helped manage that. But what I wanted to you know, further do was to make sure that franchisees intimately understood what was behind the numbers. So one thing that Jeff did that I thought was phenomenal is he required franchisees to submit a, a financial statement to us on a monthly basis. 
and it was in a prescribed format. And when I came in, I honed it a little bit and cleaned it up from my CPA perspective, but it was due on the 20th of the month at 5 p.m. And if the 20th fell on a weekend, then it was due the following Monday. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I believe that for for financial data to be relevant, it has to be timely. And so we started slowly changing that. So now they're due on the 12th of the month. Uh, But what we do is we take that data and we give it back to the franchise system and we highlight the areas that are extremely relevant to them. And so it's not, it's what I said, Pam, you don't want to inundate with 500 data points. You want to talk about the financial points that move, you know, that move the needle. Like the more actionable points where if if this is in the wrong place or headed, the trend is going in the wrong direction, here's what we need to do, you know, evaluate what you need to do right. to make a difference there so they can take some actionable steps to change that is what I'm kind of hearing it, you're getting very, to. Very much so. So, you know, I mean, what we're concentrating on, I mean, you have to control food and labor cost. Right. I mean, that, that's the bread and butter of this industry. And and I tell prospective franchisees that if you could, if you don't control labor, you're working for your employees. If you don't control food, you're working for our vendors. And if you don't control your lease, you're working for your landlord. And those are most often the three biggest expenses in the restaurant industry. And everything else becomes a detail. And so those are the key elements that we focus on within our point of sale system. I mean, the lease is the lease. There's a long story behind the lease that I won't get into, but I had a franchisee probably 20 years ago. He said, I'm just not making, I'm, you, you always talk about maximizing return on investment, Craig, and I feel like I'm not maximizing my return. I literally went through line item by line item with him on his PL, and I said, mm-hmm. Joe, there's not one thing that I can tell you that you're doing wrong that will maximize your return, but I will give you 20 items that if you do all of these things, I can assure you, you're going to make more money. It, it was clearly here, pretty focused. And, and it added up to about four or five points. And, you know, you're doing $800,000 a year in sales. 5% is a lot of money, $40,000. Yes. But it yes. wasn't made up in one line item. It was made up in 15 line items. Yeah, that's also a great lesson to take. You know, often there's not one big thing. There's just a lot of little things that if you can incrementally move the needle a little bit in several different areas, then the bigger needle moves. Yeah, and, and I we would say that. between the systems and the single store operator, I mean, I've... I've I've been at conferences and, you know, I was approached one time, I happened to be on a panel and a gentleman had a a concept and he approached me and he said, how do I get to 10 locations? And I said, how many do you have? And he said, three. And I said, are they profitable? And he said, no. And I said, well, that's how you get to 10. You have to make those three profitable. And you need to go through every line item on your PL. And, and the way I approached it, Pam, I mean, I grew up in humble, you know, a humble background. I didn't have an yeah. unlimited supply of money. I had to make it work. And yeah. when I bought out Charlie, Char- if, if Charlie listens to this, he may hear this story because he's probably never heard it before. But when I bought out Charlie, I had five locations. I bought him out in August of 99 or December of 99. I literally, I bring back our financial statements, our invoices and bankers boxes. And I'm literally sitting on my living room floor reviewing every invoice. 
And yeah. we're at a break-even point at best, which basically means you're not paying your bank debt. So I'm coming out of pocket to pay the bank monthly. Yeah. And my mindset was, do I need this expense to keep this restaurant open? Th that was my starting point. Hmm. And I also called other franchisees and said, you know, how much is your laundry and linen bill per month? I went through every line item like I had instructed that franchisee a couple of years later. And mm -hmm. the savings that I generated from eliminating waste paid the note back to Charlie. It just continued to reinforce that pennies business for me. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and I think often franchisees or restaurant owners don't do that. They want to be all things to all people or take care of the guest and whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. And you still have to make money at it. And, you know, I appreciate, I, I said, I'm not a chef and I'm not the guy who wants to change the world with, with our food, but you have to be efficient at it. And if you're not efficient at it as, as a restaurant owner, you need to find somebody who does care about those pennies. Well, and I think that's really wise, Craig, that a lot of times, People in the food business, like you said, they're focused in other areas, but the reality is that they could, even if they're profitable, they maybe could do so much better if they would pay attention. Just because you're making money doesn't mean you're making what you should be making or could be making that might enable you to scale if you want to do that or put some more away or put some more money back into the business or bring in some different equipment, you know, just the different things that you could spend the money on. I think that's really... Well, and, and, and I don't want to add just because it's how I think and it's important to me. It's not about being greedy. It's it's about being efficient at what you do. And yeah. to me, if you create efficiencies and you micromanage the pennies, ultimately the dollars will come. I mean, I never mm -hmm. once got up and thought, how much money can I make by taking it out of somebody else's pocket? I never yeah. thought that. I thought if I create all of this, then ultimately I can be the benefactor. Of I think uh, all of us should also treat our personal finances that way. The want to have like, what do I, what expenses on this list here are necessary versus, you know, to, to keep the the household running versus, you know, just we could bring it down to all different levels. But I appreciate oh, yeah. your financial perspective, Craig. <laughs> it's really fun to. So anyway, let's talk about your COVID experience before we go, because I know everybody had a situation with COVID and uh, I'm sure your restaurant chains, you know, your stores were no different. And uh, has that changed how you're moving forward? Short, short answer is yes. I remember, yes. I guess I'm a fighter. I know I'm not a quitter. Early March of 2020, when there was a buzz of what's going on, you know, in Europe and what's making its way to the United States, you know, we weren't sure what to think. Studied it from afar, but didn't know where it was going to go. And then fortunately or unfortunately for us in, in Ohio, the governor basically shut all the businesses down and shut restaurants down. And we felt like that we had a choice that I, I can't overemphasize this enough that we just have a, an intestinal fortitude that we are never, ever going to quit. In 2011, we had a credit card breach. You know, it taught me about crisis management. And I was talking to Lance Vaught. Lance is our president now. And uh, Lance said, you know, we had that credit card breach. You sent out a memo constantly to reassure the franchisees, let them know what was going on. This is what you can expect. And Lance was right. Over the course of 52 weeks, I literally sent out 104 memos. 
And, you know, our attorney said, you're not going to do that. And I said, oh, yes, I am. I am absolutely going to do this because in a crisis, if you don't intimately communicate what's okay. going on, people are going to fill in the gaps and it's going to create mm -hmm. gossip and it's going to create inefficiencies. And so Lance said that to me. And so we gathered everybody, we gathered the team first, you know, and said, we don't know where this is going yet, but we're going to figure this out. And he and I started working in our conference room every day for six months together, side by side. And, you know, I sent out the first memo explaining what was going on. And what we tried to do, do was assure the franchisees and say, look, you take care of your employees. You take care of your guests. You make sure the food is served, high quality the Penn Station has. And we will do all of everything outside the four walls of your restaurant. We will take care of the marketing. We will take care of ensuring you have the continual flow of product every day. And that's what we did. And I think for the first 55 days of COVID, we sent a memo out every day. You know, Pam, because I, th this is, I don't know if this is good or bad, because I was an auditor by trade. I'm, you, you have to trust but verify. And I'm probably, I don't trust until I do. And so, you know, the, the lady I work with at the office here who does a phenomenal job, I told her, I said, Cindy, I, I hate to say this, but whatever we are told by a supplier, I need you to verify from another source. If they tell you that yeah. they ship steak to U.S. Food Service, I need you to verify with U.S. Food Service the steak was shipped. And so that's okay. the give and take that we did to, to make sure that the franchisees were successful. Right, because supplying and doing everything outside of their four walls, let me just pause, and ensuring that they had the supplies they needed, that Probably when you were saying that initially, you didn't realize that it was, whole supply a, it was chain. a huge challenge. And, yeah. and Jeff Osterfeld, our founder, didn't in 1985 created the brand. He didn't say, you know what, I'm going to design a brand that can address COVID in 36 years. He created a system that allowed us to take advantage of our efficiencies, mm -hmm. and it was getting great food out fast. Uh, and, you know, when consumers no longer could come in the restaurant, it allowed us to play to one of our strengths. And, and we weren't even utilizing third-party delivery at the time. We thought it was too expensive. Uh -huh. We didn't like what it did to the quality of our product. But we were, we were forced, I'll use that word force, we were forced mm -hmm. to have to think about it differently. We decided to implement third-party. And at one time during COVID, it was about 35% of our sales. Yes, and that's substantial. When you look at a digital marketing strategy at the time, many, many brands pulled back. And once again, we really kind of took the contrarian approach. And it's like, well, if people aren't spending money marketing, that means marketing, people are going to be looking for money and it's going to be a lot less expensive. So we doubled our spend. Okay. It allowed our franchisees in part to thrive, did not work in the office. It's like, how can we expect our general managers who are frontline every day in the restaurant mm -hmm. uh, to be in front of consumers, to be in front of other employees. And we're hiding at home behind a desk. We said, no way. We are coming yeah. into the office every day. We will create safe spaces for you. And, and, you know, Pam, part of that, it was by design because we wanted franchisees and customers to know we were there for them. And part of it was it was our makeup. So make it, it has created so many efficiencies in our model today. May have taken years that with COVID took months to... Right. I think that word force, you don't like that. But I, we were headed in that direction anyway, as far as changing the delivery models. Consumers were going to be warming up to, you know, ordering food and either just coming and picking it up or having it delivered. Certainly more people than I ever could have imagined are 
now having things delivered that they never would have thought about having delivered before COVID, to your point. And it just sped things up for all of us. And so not a bad yeah. thing, but you definitely had to adjust before you were ready to adjust. But moving forward then, so you've, you've been able to make some changes that are positive. Again, you're, you're scaling within your own model to have some right. different options. Not a bad thing. Painful at the time, I think um, everyone will agree. But now moving forward, what are you looking at for Penn Station subs moving forward as far as well, it, innovation you know, or just, technology? Or Yeah, I mean, it, it, it impacts what you just said. I mean, what, what COVID taught was adapt or die. And it used to be as a as a restaurant operator, you were going to receive food the way I want you to receive food. And then COVID changed it to no, we're going to do it our way. So what it's caused Penn Station to do is we, a couple of years ago, we hired a general man. Uh, he's our director of franchise services, uh, which basically means his responsibility is to understand intimately how customers want to order their product. Do they want to do it through AI? Do they want to order it through their phone? Do they want to order it on the web? Do they want to come in? And, and then he evaluates technology to determine, is this going to be something that is a trend in the long term where the industry is going? Or is this going to be a fad? Online ordering portal was a little clunky. So we've had to make it more efficient. You know, as yeah. I said, we did not have third-party delivery and now we have all, you know, we have the big three, uh, you know, delivering it's still 15 or 16% mm -hmm. of our business. How many orders. stores do you have? We have, uh, uh, we're based in is... Cincinnati. Uh, yeah. We have 325 locations roughly yeah, so in 15 states. 325 locations, because when you make a decision, it affects a lot of people. Yeah. And, and, and so and, as you're evaluating this technology or the different delivery mechanisms, you know, there's over 300 stores to. Well, that's true. And well, you have to think there's, there's a myriad of things you have to think about. I mean, one of them is just, you're crossing over 15 taxing authorities with a bunch of local, okay. you know, local taxing authorities. Right. So you, you have right. to consider that, but I wouldn't, not, I wouldn't make a decision solely because of taxes. I think what franchisees, you didn't, you didn't ask me this question specifically, but I'll answer it a little bit of a different way is that sure. you have to make a decision that has the brand's best interest in mind in 325 restaurants in mind. And what may be good for one restaurant that's up the hill from here, three miles away, may not be good for the other, you know, for the other 324. Mm -hmm. And so what, what I learned from the credit card breach and what I learned from COVID was, and I, I don't mean this in a, in a bad way, I mean it in a good way, is you have to communicate the facts clear and concisely. You have to intimately articulate how it impacts the brand. Uh, you have to in intimate how it impacts your individual restaurant. And if you can create that honesty and candor with the system, which I think we have credibility with franchisees, they know that we are making individual decisions on behalf of the brand and not making individual decisions to their detriment. That's our culture. And that's, that's just credibility, right? I mean, that's just Integrity is what is what yeah. it is. And I think if you've got that and if you've built that culture, it makes it much easier when a when a crisis occurs. So the technological side has changed significantly. You asked what else? Yeah. Uh, you know, we're building smaller restaurants today. 80% oh. of our food is consumed off premise. And so you don't need 50 seats. 
you may need 25 or 30. So that's created efficiencies. You, yeah. If you don't need 50 seats, you don't need 1,800 square feet, you need 1,500. Anything that creates efficiencies for the consumer with a focus on the quality of the product in operations, because we have to take care of our other customer, which is the franchisee, yeah. uh, you know, that's the way we look at every decision we make. Does it help maximize their return? Does it deliver a better product to the consumer? And, and that's our approach. Does it create a win-win? I mean, I, I really sort of started out saying it's about maximizing return on investment to franchisees. So that's the way we approach those technological changes that we're implementing, to, that Tyler's implementing. Kudos to you for hiring somebody to evaluate all that and what the effects are and what you should do moving forward and, and just get some really goes to your analytical method of how you evaluate things and you have all along keeping that franchisee and the profits in mind because if the franchisee's not making any money, you're not going to be able to expand the brand. They're not going to be able to keep their store. Like it's just a waterfall downhill. So you don't want and to do that that's, for sure. That's very, very true. That That is yeah. very true. We are selling return on investment and our, our mm -hmm. mechanism to do that happens to be cheesesteaks and fresh cut fries and fresh squeezed lemonade. Yes. Well, and I have to say, I can't wait to try it when I'm up in the in one of the areas where you have a store. I'm going to be definitely seeking it out. Listen, Craig, thank you so much for being with us today and imparting just your perspective on the food business, really that heavy financial accounting, just bringing that thinking to what people are doing in the food industry. I just think it's a really important piece. No, I'm, I'm excited about the industry. I think we've got, uh, I think we've got some, uh, some tailwinds pushing us forward. The industry survived COVID and I think it created so many opportunities. It, it really allowed, you know, it's like when you have a health issue and you're like, I need to make some changes in my life. And I think the industry had uh, some major issues that caused us to have operational challenges that were inefficient we had to fix. And I think it caused a lot of operators to make financial changes they need to fix. And, you know, there's nothing like a national pandemic to, to do that. So I'm, I'm really excited for our industry. I mean, I, I don't attend a lot of conferences, but when I do, there's a commonality theme of problems. And you've brought up a lot of those problems today that, that we've addressed. And so I would say as a general rule, the operators I talk to are very optimistic going forward. That's great to hear. So great to hear. And thank you to those of you who listened and watched us on YouTube and other channels. We appreciate you. And if you'd like to be notified of future episodes of Future Foodcast, subscribe, like, and comment. We'd love to know what kind of guests, what you'd like to hear about the food industry moving forward. Until next time, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening to Future Foodcast. Future Foodcast is powered by Farm to Plate, the leading food blockchain platform. Subscribe on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts to stay up to date with the very latest innovations in the food industry.